24, and we will be reading the first 28 verses. So Joshua chapter 24 from verse 1. Then Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. He summoned the elders, leaders, judges, and officials of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. Joshua said to all the people, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, lived beyond the river and worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the river and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. I assigned the hill country of Seir to Esau, but Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. Then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I afflicted the Egyptians by what I did there, and I brought you out. When I brought your fathers out of Egypt, you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued them with chariots and horsemen as far as the Red Sea. But they cried to the Lord for help, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians. He brought the sea over them and covered them. You saw with your own eyes what I did to the Egyptians. Then you lived in the desert for a long time. I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived east of the Jordan. They fought against you, but I gave them into your hands. I destroyed them from before you, and you took possession of their land. When Balak, son of Zippor, the king of Moab, prepared to fight against Israel, he went for Balaam, son of Beor, to put a curse on you. But I wouldn't listen to Balaam, so he blessed you again and again, and I delivered you out of his hand. Then you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. The citizens of Jericho fought against you, as did the Amorites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hittites, Gerashites, Hivites, and Jebusites. But I gave them into your hands. I sent the hornets ahead of you, which drove them out before you, also the two Amorite kings. You didn't do it with your own sword and bow. So I gave you a land on which you didn't toil, and cities you didn't build. And you live in them and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you didn't plant. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your forefathers, uh, the god your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose lands you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us and our fathers up out of Egypt from that land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord, because he is our God. Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the God and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you, after he has been good to you. 
But the people said to, jo to Joshua, No, we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said, You are witnesses against yourself that you have chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, we are witnesses, they replied. Now then, said Joshua, throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, We will serve the Lord our God and obey him. On that day, Joshua made a covenant for the people, and there at Shechem he drew up for them decrees and laws. And Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. Then he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak near the holy place of the Lord. See, he said to all people, this stone will be a witness against us. It has heard all the words the Lord has said to us. I will be a witness against you if you are untrue to your God. Then Joshua sent the people away, each to his own inheritance. Amen. This chapter is the second part of Joshua's farewell, if you like. Chapter 23 being the first part. In chapter 23, he exhorted the Israelites to remember what the Lord had done for them. And remember, you can almost write as a title over these two chapters. At the very beginning of the book of Joshua, he also told the people to remember. There he said, remember the command that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you. The Lord your God is giving you rest and has granted you this land. So remembering at the very start of the book and remembering now near the end. Now they are to remember that the Lord has fulfilled that promise. There it was a promise. He has given you this land. He has granted you this land. Now they have occupied it. They need to obey the law and keep separate, still chapter 23, from the survivors of the nations they defeated. And if they don't, the Lord's anger will burn against them and they will perish from the land. 23.16 The second part of his farewell, the one we're looking at tonight, has more emphasis on God's acts in the past, God's, uh, sorry, Israel's history, if you like, and it seems more official. And indeed, it leads to a renewing of the covenant, which is an official act. So, looking at the text, they assembled, the place where they assembled Shechem, was where Abraham built an altar. In Genesis 33, we can read about it. And there, at this significant place, he gives an overview of redemptive history, you could say, of the history of God dealing with his people. And the emphasis throughout the whole section, you can't miss that, is on what God did. Yes, the people do need to go into the land and conquer it, but it's all been done beforehand almost by God. He makes it possible, he acts, and throughout history, from Abraham onwards, it was God acting that made the whole of the people of Israel real, made them a possibility. So that's where the emphasis lies. It started with the calling of Abraham, giving him a new start, a fresh 
start with the real God rather than the gods they were worshipping in the area where Abraham lived then. He gave him a new beginning. He promised him and did give him many descendants and that's the nation of Israel. That's how the nation of Israel was born. The people assembled there at Shechem are there because of the fulfillment of the promise God made to Abraham. First he had his son Isaac and then Isaac had Jacob and Esau. And we know of course that the twelve tribes of Israel that were gathered there with Joshua they are descendant from Jacob's twelve sons. So Isaac had Jacob and Esau but it was Jacob who was to continue the line that led to the twelve tribes of Israel. So it's interesting then to read in verse 4, I assigned the hill country of Sarah to Esau, but Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. Down to Egypt, not for a nice holiday in the sun like we might do if we go to Egypt today. He was the chosen son, the chosen descendant. But uh, things didn't seem to go well for him. His brother Esau had his hill country, presumably quite pleasant. He was free, and he and his descendants continued to live there. Jacob, however, initially they went to, uh, or his generation went in search of food to Egypt because there was a severe famine. And eventually the Israelites, we read in Genesis 47, 27, the Israelites settled in Egypt in the region of Goshen. They acquired property there and were fruitful and increased greatly in number. So everything was fine. They had food and they were doing well. But things took a significant turn for the worse, of course, after Joseph's death and after a new pharaoh who wasn't positively inclined to the Israelites coming into power. Their pleasant stay came to an end and in Exodus 1.10 we read the reason why. The Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies. So from living freely, fairly prosperously, you get the impression they became slaves and led a terrible life of oppression. So although the line of Jacob was the chosen line and Esau was rejected, Esau lives presumably comfortably in his own land and Jacob's offspring ended up as slaves in a foreign land. Being one of God's chosen people is fairly clear then. doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be plain sailing all the way. It doesn't guarantee an easy life. For Israel, the way to the promised land, to the fulfillment of that promise that God had made to them, went through slavery and suffering in Egypt. Now suffering can, of course, be caused by disobedience, and we see that time and time again in the history of God's people. They turn away from God, they start worshipping other gods, and things go wrong. But not all suffering 
is caused by sin and disobedience. And Jesus makes that very clear in John chapter 9 to his disciples. He went along, he and his disciples were going, were traveling, and he saw a blind man from birth. And the disciples were intrigued. The disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. So the blind man, it's not a nice thing to be blind, obviously. But it was for a purpose. It was not because he had sinned. It was not because his parents had sinned or his grandparents had sinned. As the disciples quickly assumed, it must be because of that. But no, it wasn't. So sometimes, through no fault of their own, the people of God can and will go through difficulties. But as the people are reminded in verse 5 to 7, Then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I afflicted the Egyptians by what I did there, and I brought you out. When I brought your fathers out of Egypt, you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued them with chariots and horsemen as far as the Red Sea. But they cried to the Lord for help, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians. He brought the sea over them and covered them. You saw with your own eyes what I did to the Egyptians. And then you lived in the desert for a long time. So God did eventually bring them out of Egypt under Moses and Aaron's leadership. If you read those verses 5 to 7, it, it, it switches between talking about you the people that Joshua is addressing there, and your fathers. And they seem to be sort of used as alternative words referring to the same kind of thing. You, the people, gathered here. There is a unity assumed here between God's people of the past, their fathers, and the present generation of the people gathered there with Joshua at Sechem. Yet we often read how the new generation is the one that doesn't really follow through with the path that their parents were on. And maybe that's the point being made here, that it's important that the things that might have happened some time ago, that God did some time ago, still have relevance today. And we realize that they are still real and significant the parents, the fathers, had experienced God in their own lives. But maybe sometimes for the children, it was just hearsay. Maybe they didn't internalize what the parents had taught them. And I'm sure parents present here tonight can identify with that. Yeah, You've learned something in your life and you desperately try to pass it on to save your kids from the mistakes you made. But sometimes they just have to go through it themselves. It doesn't seem to be enough to listen to what the parents said. But if and when they do, they can save themselves a lot of heartache. There's experience there that can keep you from problems. But it's not just the next generation that sometimes loses the focus of what God has done in the past. Sometimes it's even the very generation, the very people that saw God acting, that not too long afterwards completely forget about it or don't see the relevance of it. 
And we see it after the Exodus. God acts to put an end to the slavery, to get the people of Israel out of Egypt in quite miraculous ways. And the people had seen that. They had experienced that themselves. But then a little bit later, when Moses stays up on the mountain a little long to speak with God, receive the Ten Commandments, etc., it takes a bit long. Oh, well, let's make a golden calf. Who's this guy Moses anyway? Let's make ourselves a God we can see and touch, and let's worship that. That wasn't the next generation. That was the people who had experienced God for themselves. Similarly, after Israel sent spies to explore the promised land, it was only Caleb and Joshua who said, well, yeah, we can take this land, we should take this land, God has promised it to us, let's go. The other ten spies, again, the same generation of people, majored on how strong and powerful the people were that lived in the land with fortified cities, etc., saying we really should forget about this, this is an ill-conceived plan, let's forget about the whole promised land. And the people moan, if only we had died in Egypt or in the desert, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Numbers 14.2 The very same people who had experienced God in their own lives, now, after a slightly discouraging briefing by the spies, there are actually some fortified cities there and the people look quite fit and strong oh, well, why is God doing this to us? We can't do this. Not saying we don't have to do it. God will do it, as they had experienced before. No, they completely lost focus of that. And it's only after Moses' intercession that God forgives them. If you turn with me to Numbers chapter 14, we'll read a couple of verses there. Numbers fourteen twenty. This is after Moses intercedes for the people. The Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I live, and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt and in the desert, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their forefathers. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. So there were consequences to, well, by all accounts, that rebellion, that turning against God and saying, we can't do this, he can't do this. Let's give up on the whole enterprise. Yes, they were forgiven, but there was the serious consequence that non with two exceptions of that generation, would actually enter the promised land and they wandered through the desert until that whole generation had died. That's why there is such an emphasis in the book of Joshua on remembering. We are forgetfulness people. We can lose focus and things in the past don't seem as real to us anymore as they did when they were actually happening. That's why Joshua again and again puts things in place to remember, to remind the people. After they crossed the Jordan in chapter 4 on dry land because of God's intervention, he let them go through the river 
blocked the water. He puts 12 stones up as a memorial. After Achan, who took spoils when they had conquered one of the nations, and they were told not to take any of the spoils, but dedicate them all to God. This one man did took spoils. Because of that, they couldn't conquer a fairly minor town like I next, although previously they had conquered much bigger enemies. But because of the disobedience, God withdrew his support. When that man was identified and stoned, he was buried under a pile of stone, which remains to this day another way of remembering. After the second attempt and the victory over, I, their king, gets buried under a pile of stones. And again, which remains to this day, it's there to aid memory. Then Joshua builds an altar, and in the presence of the Israelites, copies of the law of Moses are made on stones and read out to the people to remind them. The eastern tribes who who had land, obviously, to the east, where there were no nations to be conquered, they joined the other tribes to help them conquer the promised land, although they already had their share of the land, but they fought with the others. At some point they're all done, and the eastern tribes can go back home. As Joshua sends them off, he reminds them, but be very careful to keep the commandments and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you. To love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to obey his commands, to hold fast to him, and to serve him with all your hearts and with all your soul. Chapter 22, verse 5. He reminds them of what is important, what is crucial to live as Israelites, to live as the people of God. So this interchange between you and your fathers in describing the events of the Exodus serves to show a unity between past and present people of God, which, as we've seen, you can't always take for granted. And you need to remember. We need to remember what God has done for us, and we need to teach it to our children they will not just inherit their place in God's people they have to enter into it themselves then as Joshua goes on he describes how God gave them victory over their enemies protected them from being cursed by Balaam who was sort of magician stroke prophet for hire and was engaged by one of the enemy kings to curse the people of God. Note that it doesn't say that this curse was all nonsense and that it wouldn't have had bad consequences if it actually happened. If God had allowed Balaam to enter to utter one, it says, I delivered you out of his hand. Evil is real, but God protects his people. Further nations were given into their hands. Verse 12 then. I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you. Also the two Amorite kings. You didn't do it with your own sword and bow. 
it's not quite clear what this hornet represents, what it is, what it did. Some people think it, it refers to fear, that the enemies were scared and therefore might flee or not fight as effectively. And there are two references earlier in Joshua where the enemies were scared. Chapter 2 verse 9, chapter 5 verse 1. Maybe that's what the hornet refers to or what the hornet did. We're not quite sure. It isn't quite clear. But what is very clear is that it was God's doing. Not their own sword, not their own weaponry that made this possible. Not their skills in fighting. It was once again God who did it. Verse 13. So I gave you a land on which you didn't toil and cities you didn't build and you live in them and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. It was all God's gift. It was all an undeserved favor. Then we get to the bit where it becomes a little bit more official and, and Joshua works towards, you could say, re-establishing the covenant or challenging Israel, whether they are up for that. This uh, now in verse 14 and again in verse 23, now then, now therefore, it depends a little bit on the translation you read. But it's sort of a phrase that, that indicates an official, almost legal setting where something important happens. It's a little bit like a teacher saying, now listen up, we've got a test next week. And, and then he says or she says something that might well be in the test. So it's a sign for the kids to wake up and uh, make a few notes. Here it's a sign for the readers to pay attention. Something of importance with regards to the covenant is happening. And what it all comes down to is fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Fear not in the sense of terror and quaking in your boots because God is terrible and scary. But fear as a sense of having awe and reverence. And we need that. We can come to God and we can pray and we can worship and we can sing lovely hymns we have been singing. But it is still the God of the universe that we are approaching. And awe and reverence is appropriate. Fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. And the faithfulness he then immediately makes clear includes throw away the gods, of your, forefa- uh, the gods your forefathers worshipped. Throw them away. Dispose of them. They have no value. And you can't have both. Faithfulness implies exclusiveness. A relationship with God can only work if it is to the exclusion of other things, other gods. Nothing else can take priority over him, whatever, whatever it might be in your life. It's an either-or choice. Yes, you can have many, many other interests and friends and love your wife, stroke husband and children, but it can't come before God. That sense of exclusiveness. And the people respond Faithfully, they get given this choice. Choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. 
No one forces you. It's a choice. And the people respond positively. Far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. And then they themselves recap some of the things that happened. The bringing out of slavery, the great signs that God performed, the protection that he offered, the driving out of the nations before them. The people themselves now go over this fairly briefly and say, we too will serve the Lord because he is our God. And then a strange thing happens. Joshua gives a stern warning. You are not able to serve the Lord. Now nowadays when, let's say, managers or teachers give feedback, they get told, well, you need to do this like a sandwich. Yeah, first you've got a slice of bread, you praise the person, you say, oh, you, you did a very good job, and uh, we love having you in the department, and you've made a real difference. And then sort of the cheese or the ham in the middle, that's the criticism, but you could do this or that better, and then you end positively again with a second slice of bread. Well, Joshua obviously hadn't heard of modern feedback techniques, modern management techniques. He goes right in there and says, you are not able to serve the Lord. After the people had said, yeah, yeah, good idea, we want this, we want to serve God. You are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellions and sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you. Very harsh words. The not forgiving sins shouldn't be seen in the sense of once they do something wrong, it's irretrievably lost. It should be seen in conjunction with the rebellion. He will not forgive your rebellions and sins. Rebellion and willful disobedience cuts us off from grace. And then without grace, there is no forgiveness. If I rebel against God, if I say, I don't want to do his will... I know better, or I have interests that don't align with what he is saying me. There is no forgiveness until I repent, until I turn back. God doesn't willy-nilly forgive and allow me to be stubborn and just continue on my way. Forgiveness always comes hand in hand with repentance. So therefore he will not forgive your rebellion and sins. Rebellion, willful disobedience, cuts us off from grace. And the forgiveness is only possible when we give up the rebellion. That is what is meant here. And the next book in the Old Testament, Judges, shows you that very clearly. The people turn away from God, things go horribly wrong. They get lorded over by the nations around them. Their crops get destroyed. And at some point... They give up their willful disobedience and cry out to God. God raises up a judge and uses him and blesses him and empowers him. And the problem gets sorted. And not long afterwards, they wander off again and do their own thing. And surprise, surprise, once they're back in their rebellion, in their willful disobedience, things go wrong again. But every time they return to God, they cry out. God raises up a judge who helps them. So forgiveness is possible. Now despite this strong warning, Joshua does acknowledge the people's choice. We will serve the Lord. 
and this being a pretty formal, almost judicial setting, witnesses are needed. So Joshua says, well, you will be witnesses against yourself. If you turn away from God, if you go back to the rebellion, if you go back to being stubborn people who do their own thing, then God will abandon you. So after they agree to this, Joshua reiterates his earlier command, throw away the foreign gods, and he adds, yield your hearts to the God of Israel. It's not about a strict legal obedience to the letter of the law. It's also yielding their hearts. That's where it needs to come from. A willingness to have God in the first place. Not just an obedience of the commandments. And this is again preceded by the now then. This is important. The people take on a solemn obligation to serve and obey their God. And all of this was duly recorded by Joshua. And again, a stone was set up as a reminder and as a witness against you if you are untrue to your God. So the one thing that we have to conclude from this chapter is that remembering is crucial. Reminding ourselves of what God has done is so very, very important. Joshua puts up various stone structures after significant things happened to mark those important occasions. He built an altar. He made stone copies of the law. He read out the law. People are reminded of all the things in this chapter that the Lord had done for them. He reminded them. And then the renewed covenant is recorded. And another stone is set up as a reminder. Now, I already said, as people, we are prone to forget. Or even if we don't forget, we are at risk of not learning from the lessons of the past. Just do the same thing over and over again and expect a different outcome. Well, that's what Einstein called the definition of insanity. Doing the same thing over and over again and think that something else will happen. Or, and that's maybe even worse, taking God, who he is and what he has done for us, for granted. And thereby trivializing him and trivializing his goodness. And if you've been a Christian for a good number of years, that can happen. That is a risk. And I'm sure we can all look back on periods in our lives where it was all a little bit routine and we went through the motions and it didn't really sink in. So just as Joshua, we need to create opportunities to remember, to remind ourselves. And that's what we do in worship. Worship isn't just singing songs. Are we aware of the actual words that we're singing? Do we let them sink in? They're an opportunity to express things to God if we make the words our own. When we pray, do we truly appreciate the awesomeness of being able to approach a holy God and have a conversation with him? Do we? I can't presume to uh, sort of just go to the queen. I can't just walk into Buckingham Palace and say, hey Liz, how are you doing? Shall we have a cup of tea? That would never happen. 
Maybe if you do something sort of significant in your life, you get a minute with the Queen, as you get an OBE awarded. But you can't just wander in off the street and speak to her. Yet she is only human. And we can with God. God, the creator of heaven and earth, the creator of the universe, this holy and all-powerful God, there we can go and talk to him. We can call him Abba Father, Paul says in Romans. He is actually looking forward and encouraging this exchange with him. Jesus, to encourage his disciples to pray in Luke, gives the parable of the persistent widow. There was this widow who wanted something of a judge who had some legal dispute with someone and the judge didn't really care. But she kept on pestering him until in the end he ruled in her favor. And it was given as an example of persistence that God actually wants us to pray and keep praying. Do we appreciate the awesomeness of being able to approach that holy God? Another opportunity we create in the church is communion. It's meant to remind us of the price that's been paid to make this all possible. And it's a great opportunity to stop and remember, to take stock and appreciate, to pray for forgiveness, to make changes, to rededicate, to recommit. But only if I'm actually awake and aware enough to do it. And sometimes we just go through the motions. Or I should say, sometimes I just go through the motions. I'm tired or I'm distracted. And I didn't realize it was communion today. And I don't make the most of it. But we need to use these opportunities. Just like Joshua created opportunities to remember for the people. We need them as well. (coughs) In Israel's Israel's history, we see there wasn't just the risk of the people who had actually experienced God themselves in their lives to forget and trivialize him and his workings, but also, or even more, of not passing it on to the next generation. Now for us, the next generation is not just our children. It obviously includes our children. But with the great commandment that we've been given, make disciples of all nations, it includes people outside of our immediate family as well. People who can become God's children through our witness. Now sharing with your children will be different from sharing with other people. But both are about, to use Joshua's words, yielding their hearts to God. And we have a role to play there. We have a ministry in doing that. And if we don't truly appreciate what God has done for us, if we don't truly appreciate that ourselves and and, and live in that realization, how believable are we going to be as a witness? How bright is our light going to be? How salty is our salt going to be? How can we be truly his witnesses? We saw that being part of God's people doesn't always mean it's plain sailing. Compare Esau versus Jacob. Things can go wrong, or at least wrong from our perspective, as I'm sure Israel would have said as they were slaves in Egypt. And many modern day people 
have experienced things where they would have said, why is this happening to us? Think of Hudson Taylor, the famous missionary to China. He lost five of his nine children in childbirth, one shortly after childbirth because his wife was ill and couldn't breastfeed and there wasn't enough other food around to feed to a baby. The baby died shortly afterwards. His wife died. He had a serious accident and was nearly paralyzed for a period of time. But probably the biggie, five out of his nine children died and his wife died. Now, looking at his ministry, no one would deny that he was doing God's work. So it must have gone through his mind, I would have thought, why is this happening to me if I'm doing God's work? We don't know. Those four children all became missionaries with China Inland Mission, by the way. But so often we don't understand things. We pray for something, something which is obviously good and desirable, but it doesn't happen. Why not? Well, we need to remind ourselves we can't grasp the full mind of God to borrow Tim's phrase he is God, we are not to presume that I know what he is doing, what his plans are, is presumptuous much more presumptuous than thinking that I can walk into Buckingham Palace and have tea with the Queen yes we've got his word, yes he has revealed an awful lot to us but we haven't got a grasp on God and Sometimes, or maybe even often, we don't really understand his plans. So sometimes things go wrong, and it's not because we've messed up in some way. But sometimes it is. Sometimes it's my willful disobedience that gets me into trouble, that causes my suffering, and maybe also suffering of people around me. And we see the same thing time and time again in Israel's history. So it's important that we occasionally take stock. Again, take time to remember, take time to take stock, to see where I'm at in my life with God. Whether there is indeed something that causes problems, whether there is a persistent sin, persistent stubbornness, whatever it might be. Re-evaluate Think about the relationship and if and when necessary, rededicate our lives when we have drifted, as Joshua did when re-establishing the covenant with Israel. And just like emphasized by Joshua in this chapter, it's an exclusive relationship. It is either or. It is not God in my career or God and my family but it is God and then the other good things in your lives on the plane below him he is a jealous God and the jealous means he doesn't share he doesn't share you with your career he has to come first and if that means a sacrifice of something in your lives whatever it might be then you have to be willing to make that sacrifice. We cannot have other things in our lives that have equal importance. That's what Joshua means when he says God is a jealous God. 
And I'll end with saying it once again, just like Joshua did over and over again. Remembering, reminding ourselves of who he is and what he has done for us. And the awesomeness that we can approach God, that we can call him Abba Father, which basically amounts to Dad. That we can speak to him freely. That he listens and hears and answers our prayers. Maybe not always in the way that I want. But again, he is God, I'm not. Realize in what an awesome position we are as Christians. Shall we close by singing, Be Thou My Vision?